the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We're at episode 287. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Hey, first up, uh, just an apology. We have been running very late with managing to uh, finalise this episode and get it online. So sorry about that. We should be back to uh, back to normal uh, with the next episode, which you'll see in the next couple of days. Uh, now, with this episode, I spent time uh, speaking with Miriam Jaw, also known as Tank Girl, uh, sharing her impressions from Computex in Taipei. Uh, that bit's over Skype, so there will be some variance in terms of the um, the audio quality compared to uh, our normal sort of in studio discussions. And then I follow that up with an interview and uh, or a, a bit of a chit chat with uh, Netgear's Tris Simmons. And he shares thoughts on what's happening in the world of fixed and wireless uh, networking from his perspective. He's based out of the UK, but just dropped into New Zealand for a few days. Uh, so we managed to uh, to grab him into the studio to uh, to hang out and uh, and have a little bit of a chat. So I think you'll find both of those quite interesting. Well, without further ado, let's jump in and get underway. Well, welcome back to the podcast, uh, Miriam. Uh, how are you going there? You're in uh, Japan now, I believe, after... Uh, yeah. After being in Taipei. Indeed. Yes. Hi, Paul. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I am in Japan right now, so if my connectivity is a little off, you know why. It's a hard country to get good internet in, believe it or not. There was a time when Japan was all the rage when it came to uh, the best phones in the world and the best connectivity, but that is no longer the case, sadly. Um, I've been in Asia since mid-May for work. And I am leaving mid-June, so it's a long trip. And I decided to extend my time uh, that I spent for business in Taiwan, in Taipei, into a bit of a break slash work holiday, as it were, when you run your own business in Japan. And so I was at Computex in Taipei uh, covering that for Mobile Geeks as kind of a side gig, as a part of a bigger gig that took me to Taiwan. And, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I saw, so we should That's talk about cool. that. Yeah, well, very, very keen to hear sort of a bit of fir- first-hand uh, um, feedback on, on what you saw. We talked on our uh, last episode of the New Zealand Tech Podcast around uh, some of the announcements taking place there at uh, at Computex in Taipei. Uh, but you were there, so I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, the um, ASUS press event. Now, being the, the big local innovators there in uh, in Taipei, Taiwan, uh, they tend to have uh, you know, probably the biggest and, and most exciting of the uh, the press events uh, on a lot of occasions, and this year certainly seemed to fall into that category. Um, give us your, your rundown on how that event was and what you thought of seeing the uh, the Zenbo uh, robot slide out onto uh, onto the stage and so on. Yeah, I mean, that was a pretty major announcement. Uh, let's walk through some of the products, okay? So they announced really eight things. It's a lot. Um, there were three phones, uh, three two-in-one tablets uh, or convertibles, if you want, one laptop, and of course Zenbo, the you know family robot, whatever you want to call it. So uh, you know, I'm going to start with the phone simply because I am a phone person, as you know. Um, they launched three phones: uh, Zenfone Three, which is kind of like their their base model, uh, Zenfone Three Deluxe, which is a, a tarted up, slightly more high-performance version of the same phone. And then um, the Zenfone 3 Ultra. 
And that one is massive. It's a 6.8-inch screen, um, super high-end specs, and quite frankly, quite an impressive package if you can muster a phone that large. Because um, that's really all, falling into the tablet sort of uh, size, isn't it? I mean, we've got a number of tablets yes. at that seven, the 7-inch seven screen size, and uh, you think of that something that, that might go into a jacket pocket. but Well, not. you know, so the thing that's changed a lot since the initial 7-inch tablets we've been playing with is the, the bezel size, right? So this thing has so little bezel that it's in effect a screen with a bar at the top and the bottom. And uh, as such, it is quite small for a 6.8-inch device. So okay. don't dismiss it just yet. I think some people might feel comfortable putting this in their jeans pockets. Um, of course, you know, I'm not sure where it's going to land. Uh, and the pricing was a little vague, but it seemed pretty aggressive. I, I can't remember the exact details. I would suggest you Google it. But um, overall, very impressed. I mean, Asus has been making some really interesting phones. Um, they get a little watered down on their way to the U.S., Thankfully, they have managed to sell them in the U.S. through an agreement with the, the operator AT&T, but uh, they get, you know, plastified, as it were, <laughs> on their way in. Uh, most of uh, Asus's phones in the last few years have been made of metal um, and, you know, quite well designed. It's the whole Zen line of um, the, the Zen branding of Asus is all around spun metal and you know, things like that. So They're usually um, pre- pretty pretty good looking, aren't they? Um, yeah, but, and but, so this this is true of these three phones as well. Even the base model, Zenfone 3, is pretty impressive. Um, then the other, the next three products were the three tablets, and those were basically competitors to Surface Pro, Surface, and a replacement for the very popular Asus uh, Transformer Book T100. I don't know if you're familiar with that product. Yeah, I was at the launch of that one in uh, San Francisco when it came out. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a. It was a nice product, but probably didn't get as much, uh, you know, traction. Certainly in this part of the world, as as maybe uh, Asus had uh, had had hoped. And right, I guess I mean, hence, hence why they they're going down that track of the uh, Surface com- competitors, right? Right. I mean, let's start quickly with the ZenBook. Sorry, the the transformer book T100 replacement, which right now completely escapes me what they call it. Uh, it might have been a transformer book three or something like that. But it it is very small, very light, very thin, very cheap, which is I mean, cheap in a good way, affordable. Um, it which you know is what the T100 was all about. And uh, what's exciting to me is that I have a T100, and I have to say that you know it's not a high performance Windows machine, but it's, it's the closest thing we've had since the early days of the EPC, like the the netbook, right, to a return to form. Because 200 US dollars buys you a completely perfectly viable Windows machine. In this case, a two-in-one. So to me, that's significant. Uh, but it's true that what they really were trying to show off is, and you, you'll see, read my article on Mobile Geeks if you want, I wrote about my hands-on experience. I took most of the pictures for them at the ASUS event, but I actually wrote uh, an article specifically on the trans, on the, um, what they call the, was it Transformer 3 Pro, which is the Surface Pro competitor. That's right. And this is, this is taking a shot straight at the Surface Pro 4. Uh, uh, and it's interesting, Surface 4 Pro, I guess. It's interesting because it's slightly thinner, has a slightly better display. Um, it's slightly lighter, uh, but if you looked at how they designed it, the kickstand, the 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 
the covers, right? Basically, the the touch type, or rather, what, what are the, 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 the keyboard cover is, is yeah, probably what the simplest way of putting it. There's, there's the a, type there's cover, a type cover, and a touch cover, right? Yeah, the type cover uh, is is what they obviously are going after here with a backlit keyboard with a 1.4 millimeter key travel, which is one of the best key travels on this kind of uh, cover. And, you know, all in all, I felt like they really outdid Microsoft. It just feels like a more premium product. It's amazing how 0.1 millimeter thickness difference and a bit of weight difference immediately makes you feel like you have a more premium product in hand. Uh, so anyway, I think, um, I think that... Uh, they did a very good job. Uh, the verdict's still out whether people are going to switch to that versus a, a genuine Surface, right? But um, we'll see. The, the middle device is called the Transformer 3, and that's basically a Surface, a regular Surface uh, competitor. But here's the catch. So while the small, smaller screen, low, lower range right, terms But there's a catch, actually. You know how the main the Surface Pro versus the Surface is just a scaled-down Surface Pro, right? The Surface from Microsoft, in the sense that you still have the kickstand, even though it doesn't give you the wide range of adjustment, it's a smaller screen, etc. They've won, They've gone another route at ASUS. Their Surface competitor looks like an iPad or iPad Pro, rather. Like, it is all aluminum, ultra thin, like we're talking 6 millimeters or something, 6.5, I mean, it's crazy thin. And it does not have a kickstand. Instead, it has a cover that folds like the iPad cover. So it's more like um, the device we saw from Huawei at Mobile World Congress, which was called, it escapes me now, but it was a, a Windows 10 device with Intel. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, that was quite quite an interesting move from from Huawei because, you know, we just hadn't seen them playing in this space at all. And yeah, suddenly there there they were with um with their new MateBook. Uh and yeah, That's it's gonna right. it's gonna be curious. We we're seeing such a, a variety of competitors now to uh uh to this you know, to Microsoft Surface uh, products and you know, Microsoft have had one or two uh, issues themselves with their Surface products. So um yeah, I'm I'm keen to see actually how uh, how things are sort of gonna roll out uh over time. So this um so the Transformer three, that's got a twelve point six inch screen, it's still got a very a very high definition uh, yes. Display and so on, so it's um, it's quite an interesting in terms of yeah a hybrid between um, you know features as you mentioned Huawei, uh, e- even the uh, the the iPad uh, Pro. So I mean I, I don't think of it as a competitor to the iPad because it's not running Windows 10, it's not Intel based, but uh, the the iPad isn't. But sure. and to me it's not really a productivity. I mean I, I think the iPad's a beautiful device, but I have an issue running OS uh, iOS as my main OS, right? Like as why I have a I'm talking to you right now on a 12-inch MacBook uh, in a tiny little bathroom inside a, a hotel in, in, in Japan because I like I like having a real full-blown OS at my disposal. But um, and that's only possible. You can obviously do that with this Surface uh, competitor. But what's interesting is that like Huawei, ASUS is going the route of the aesthetics of the iPad married with the functionality of the Surface, and. Whereas Microsoft Surface is really has that kind of industrial vibe to it, right? It, it feels like a, a, an enterprise product to me. Even though it's a gorgeous enterprise product, I have a Surface Pro 3 that I love. But 
this, you know, obviously the Transformer 3 Pro mimics the look and feel and the design of the, the Surface. But the, the mid-range product, the, the, the Surface competitor, not the Surface Pro competitor from Asus, really aims at in, in aesthetics at, at the iPad and at, you know, like, like Huawei did, which I think is an interesting approach. Because frankly, if you're a consumer, that's probably where you want to be, right? Yeah, the other thing about it is that if you compared, for instance, the iPad Pro versus the Surface Pro, including up to the, the 4, the iPad Pro was, what's the term Microsoft coined, in the, in the lapability, uh, you know, how, how well it worked on your lap. Interestingly, the, uh, the iPad Pro would would win out for a number of reasons. Just seem to be more uh, more stable. Looking at the way the case is on the Transformer Three, I wonder whether that would be the same uh, or not. I think it's similar to the iPad Pros in a folding case that falls very similar to what the iPad case falls like. Um, so it's not relying on Bluetooth like the original iPads for its keyboard. Uh, which I think is great. Um, but at the same time, it's not at all like a Surface with the kickstand. So it's it's an interesting approach. Um, let's move on to ZenBook 3. To me, that's the winner of the show, other than the robot, of course. Uh, you know how Apple has the MacBook 12-inch, you know, the one I'm using right now. And the reason I use it is, yes, I give up some performance uh, compared to a regular MacBook Air or MacBook Pro. But the portability wins, right? For me, that's I, I travel all the time. So having a two-pound laptop with a full OS and a reasonably good performance is wins every time, right? Yeah, I mean uh, it's very, very the, slick and and very, very portable. Very absolutely, yeah. Right, no fans, so it's quiet, it's efficient. I mean, with Wi-Fi turned off and the brightness to about a quarter, running simply just a PowerPoint, and I could go on a why I picked PowerPoint that time, but um, I was on my flight in to Taipei, and I ran for eight hours straight on this laptop with just PowerPoint and Wi-Fi turned off and the brightness low, and I still had 50% of the battery left at the end of the eight hours. That, that's, so, that's impressive, and it's only uh, so it's that, about 920 you know, grams, isn't it? It's very light. Exactly. People are complaining about the MacBook not being a performance machine, but they lose track of what it's designed for. And and this is where you see how Intel's new chips really shine. And I don't even the new generation of the MacBook that was just announced a few weeks ago. I have the original. So as I was mentioning, the uh, ZenBook 3 is really light. So it's lighter, thinner, faster than the MacBook. More importantly, packing Core i7 with fans. So it's it's going to be interesting to see if they can uh, manage the battery life versus thickness and weight compromises on that device. But it's beautiful. It's really well made. It's all metal and, you know, it's up, definitely up there with the MacBook in terms of sexiness. So kudos to Asus for doing that, frankly. Yeah, but uh, it's quite curious that Apple have sort of set a new standard in laptops here and we've got uh, Asus that have followed in their footsteps. HP have also now got a very, very similar uh, style of product too. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. You know, you say it seems odd. I don't think it's odd at all. Apple's been doing this forever, defining the standard. The, the entire concept of the Ultrabook from Intel came about because of the MacBook Air. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Um, you know, it's just it's just the competition following Apple, and that's it's sad that the PC industry, who should be leading, is following. I, I don't understand it personally. Um, I mean, I certainly, you know, uh, I'm a big Mac fan, but I'm not a big fan of Apple overall for everything. I certainly don't like using OS 10 devices very much. So I just find it odd that the PC industry is not able to lead in this area because Asus really should be leading. I mean, technically they are since on paper their device is better, but I don't know. Um, one last thing about the ZenBook 3, it has a fingerprint reader on the trackpad, which is interesting. That's nice. So how how is that integrated into the trackpad? Uh, in the top right corner, it's still a separate thing. It's not under the glass, which, by the way, is something that was shown at Computex. Somebody had a under the under the glass trackpad integrated fully in the trackpad fingerprint reader that was flush. But um, basically, and I don't know if it was anywhere on the trackpad or a specific spot, but... The ZenBook is not like that. The ZenBook is a physically a, a separate place where you put your finger. And it's not like a swipe one, right? It's like it's like a modern phone would be. You tap on it and you hold it. You yeah, know? okay. So this would be useful while logging into Windows 10, obviously, Windows Hello. So let's talk about the robot real quick because I don't have much to say other than everything you can see on the Internet right now in terms of video is all I can really back up, right? But what I can add to that is that being there at the announcement was interesting because there was a, definitely a, a, a vibe of excitement in the crowd. Uh, because as you know, this idea of combining, you know, Google Now or uh, Amazon Echo slash Alexa experience um, on a walking platform, or not walking, but rolling platform, is something that's been attempted before. There's been a few crowdfunding campaigns um, I can't remember offhand who did this, but there's a few kind of domestic uh, assistant robot type things out there already, and none of them have really captured the imagination because I don't think any of them have shipped yet. The fact that ASUS went ahead and built something like this and with their might and their manufacturing expertise means that this is a segment that we've all been expecting to take off and it might finally take off. Especially so, at this sort of price point, right? It becomes very, yeah, very accessible. Yeah, $600 is really impressive, uh, US. Uh, but of course, more importantly, you know, um, it, it seems like we're not quite sure what backend ASUS is using for all of the AI part, you know, the, the Google Now, uh, Amazon Echo Alexa type stuff, like all the questions answering. But uh, it seems that they have something pretty good up their sleeve. It could be that they're partnering with Google, for all we know. But, um, I mean, you know, it's still far away. ASUS has a history of launching products and, you know, taking quite a while to actually, you know, ship them. So I, I think, you know, don't hold your breath. But at the same time, it's exciting to see a mainstream manufacturer tackling this market. And, and we'll see how it goes, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about the Gigabyte laptop real quick? Yeah, well, what, just in terms of the other the other highlights, um, I mean, there, there weren't a million things at uh, at Computex this year that stood out. But uh, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned the Gigabyte laptop, uh, MSI's backpack computer. Maybe you can run us through those ones. 
Yeah, real quick. So the backpack, I think, is more interesting. I think uh, there's going to be this interim period of time when these backup backpack computers are going to be worth having maybe for a VR setup. The idea is instead of having, if you have a Vive from HTC or a Oculus Rift, which, as you know, require dedicated you know desktop PC to run properly, instead of having that on your face and the PC in the corner of the room with a tether, the idea here is why don't you strap the computer to your back and have a, just basically a, uh, a either a power cord or I think in this case a battery pack running the thing so that you can be untethered. It's an interesting idea and it does make sense, I think, as an interim solution, right? And apparently HP's done one and I saw the one at, uh, at, from MSI at Computex and it's 10 pounds, which is not light, but it's, if you put it on your back, does, I mean, 10 pounds is not that heavy either. So it didn't seem too heavy to me. Yeah, that's under, and, under five kilos. So. And it's optimized, right? Because it is a full blown desktop PC in a box. Uh, so it's optimized. It's obviously able, they, I think they're leveraging their mobile, uh, their mobile gaming experience, their high end, uh, large mobile laptops to build this product. So it's probably going to have some shock resistance even while running, which a desktop wouldn't have. Um, and the power that you'd expect from a VR rig. So that's really interesting to me. It's an interesting approach. I think it's very much an interim thing. I'm a big believer that VR, um, is best served by a mobile device slipped into the, the goggles, like a Galaxy Gear VR setup, or by a dedicated, uh, you know, head, head, headset that has the computing bits in it. Or, yeah, basically, like HoloLens, but obviously that's an AR device. But imagine a dedicated VR device like that. I think that's where we're going. That's what people want. Um, people don't have a dedicated room for VR in their house. You know, people want to be able to just immerse somewhere, anytime, anywhere. And right now, the best solution for that is to use the computing power that's in your pocket, which is very, very good. Sure. And as yep. phones get better, I think we're going to see this concept of having a dedicated computer either as a backpack or in the corner of your room disappear. Um, and of course, we'll see dedicated VR devices, which I think makes a lot more sense. But that's just me. And, and, and I'm willing to I'm willing to sacrifice some of my VR experience performance, like get to 80 or 90% of what an Oculus or Vive can give me in terms of immersion uh, and be mobile at the same time. To me, that's way more important, you know? Sure. So the other thing I want to talk about was a gigabyte laptop. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because I was one of the devices I did a hands-on for mobile geeks. And, uh, and you know, it was one of the things like, can you cover this for us? We, you know, we're strapped. Let's go. And I'm like, okay, it's not my area of expertise, but I'll check it out. And I went to the gigabyte um, area on the 36th floor of the Taipei 101, which is the big uh, uh, skyscraper in Oh, Taiwan. very cool. Very cool. I've been up there a few times before, but we actually got hit by an earthquake while I was doing the hands-on, which was really interesting. <laughs> the building barely moved, to be frank, although if you were not in that building, apparently it shook quite noticeably. So it's it's a dampened building. It has a, a, big, a big pendulum at the top to dampen wind and earthquake forces. And it, I can tell you, it clearly worked because I'm used to earthquakes in California, and it you know I don't lose my mind when one hits. But this didn't barely felt like anything had happened to me. So it, you know, whereas other people I talked to said, yeah, they really felt it. So very interesting. But the Gigabyte laptop in question is called the Eero 14. And what's cool about it is it's a w almost two centimeters, 19.9 millimeter, uh, thin ultra portable, I guess, 
Uh, it's less than four pounds or four, almost four pounds, so two something kilos, a bit less than two kilos. It has um, all the performance you could muster, including uh, a full-on GeForce GFX card. And, you know, seemed to me like the perfect compromise between if you're a road warrior and and a power user. Like, you really need compute performance on a Windows 10 device, potentially play games from time to time, and you need something super light and thin. And I've never seen a laptop before that, for me, hit both both camps really nicely. So I went into this expecting ah, another gaming laptop, and what I got was, you know, something that was more geared for me, really, an ultra-portable with some serious horsepower behind it. 14 inches, quad HD display, matte display, all the core i7 options and uh, two PCIe SSD slots, so you can put two terabyte SSDs in there and raid them if you want to go crazy, um, up to 32 gigs of RAM, two RAM slots. It's all upgradable, too, which is amazing. Um, yeah, so really impressive that you can make a laptop that is upgradable and is that powerful in such a slight and slim package is my takeaway. Yeah, no, it, uh, I mean, I've, I had a look at your coverage online and, uh, you know, just as you run through those things for such a powerful laptop that is, uh, um, that light is uh, is really impressive. There's not really much that's missing, is there? I think uh, you know a touch screen. People are starting to get used to. That's um, that's probably one of the one of the few things yeah, that's uh, no not screen. there. Yeah. But then again, the ZenBook Three doesn't have a touch screen either. So mm. you know, I, I guess it's interesting that there are still Windows 10 laptops without touch screens. Um, I personally would never really use the touch screen much on a laptop, but that's just me. I'm old school. I like the mouse cursor and a good trackpad. Sure. So you know. But that's my, you know, that was my Computex in a nutshell. I was, you know, only there for the first two days. But it's really that's when things are happening. And the press conferences are day day minus one or day zero or what you want to call it, you know. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's interesting that this year Asus was really the only big player with a press conference on a, the day before. In the past, I've done Computex a few times. And, you know, usually you have Acer and you have Intel and you have all the big chip makers. I did go to the Qualcomm press event where they announced a Snapdragon uh, 1100, Snapdragon Wear 1100, uh, processor optimized for wearables, for low-end wearables, like fitness bands and stuff. Mm. They recently launched a Snapdragon 2 2100, Snapdra- Snapdragon Wear 2100, which is optimized for smartwatches. We're going to start seeing that processor on, uh, Android Wear devices in the summer. And I'm very excited because we should see a doubling of battery life. So, you know, there are some things that stand out from Computex, but nothing, other than really the Asus stuff to me was really the the big the big thing and the Zenbo of course. Yeah, well, we're certainly looking forward to seeing that. Now we've heard it's uh, maybe six to nine months away, so uh, so it's not something we're going to be getting oh, yeah. anytime soon. I honestly, yeah. I think we're looking at a year to be honest, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, that's all I can contribute to, that's, uh, to that, the show today. That's great. That's uh, that's really helpful. Now, uh, Miriam, where do people track you down online? Obviously, they can see some of your, your coverage from uh, Computex uh, there at, uh, at at mobilegeeks.com. Uh, but where's your, your blog? And remind us of your uh, your, your Twitter. Sure. So I'm at tanker, L-T-N-K-G-R-L.com. 
My handle is Tankerl, T-N-K-G-R-L. That's like the comic book, but without the vowels. So uh, go find me on, mostly on Twitter is the best way to follow me because anything important that happens with my blog or whatever is going to be there. Uh, And then finally, my blog has my podcast and occasionally some review videos. From my blog, you can get to my YouTube channel, which unfortunately I don't have a very easy URL to share with you. But basically, that's where it's at. Twitter, my YouTube channel, and my blog. Go get it. Check it out. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for your time again. Enjoy the rest of your time in uh, in Japan. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me on. Excellent. That's great. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Okay, right now with uh, Tris Simmons, who's with Netgear in the UK. You've been uh, tripping around the world a bit recently, I believe, Tris. Yes, good morning. I have. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's been non-stop. It's been from one place to the other, talking to people about the trends in IT and how things are evolving and seeing how they react. So it's been very interesting. Well, thank you very much for uh, dropping by the podcast New Zealand studio to uh, to give us a little bit of an update on what is happening in the in the world of networking, obviously from a, a Netgear perspective to some degree, I'm, I'm keen to hear what have the, been the highlights that you've been talking to audiences about and who is the sort of target audience that you've mostly been uh, communicating with? Well, we've been talking to um, a range of, of, of people, everything from our channel partners through to uh, the market, the end users, and essentially socialising some of the ch- trends and changes we're seeing in IT. And when I say the trends in IT is for those organizations that can be anything from, say, four or five people up to four or five hundred people. Um, Netgear tend to focus on the, on the SMB space per, per se that, that extends to that sort of audience. Um, and the one thing that comes across is the need for speed um, in terms of people expect to do more. People are producing more content. They are consuming more content. They're not necessarily getting rid of it. They're not necessarily deleting it. And it's piling up. And then when they want to get to it, um, they've got more devices. Uh, these devices want to associate with the network and then you're essentially seeing the, 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 the need for um, the networks to cope, whether it's on the wireless side, whether it's on the switching side, the security side. There's just a lot of change that's taking place there. And we've got uh, faster and faster internet connections, you know, too. And here in New Zealand, we've got the ultra-fast um, you know, broadband mm-hmm. uh, rollout taking place at the, at the moment and, uh, you know, I guess a, a growing percentage of the population and certainly uh, the large majority of businesses have access to uh, those speeds where their internet connectivity can be uh, you know, anywhere from one or two hundred uh, megabits, maybe a gigabit, and, and some obviously able to go faster than that for those that need it. Mm. I guess that that puts a bit of pressure on on all sort of points of the uh, the networks if people aren't, uh, aren't running all the right... Uh, technologies together in unison, right? Correct. And it comes down to looking at the network as a whole, not in isolation. So one of the things that we're seeing is, let's take wireless as an example. Organizations that are refreshing their wireless networks, they may be extending the number of access points. Um, They may be moving from 11N to 11AC to cope with the rise of wireless devices generally. Um, And when they go through that exercise of, of refreshing the network or adding, expanding the network, you tend to see people then start complaining about connectivity issues, performance issues. And the first thing to do is blame the wireless network because that was the last thing that changed. Um, now, there are implications, as I say. Sometimes it's a firewall that's the last thing people think of. Now, what I mean by that is, as you said, ultra-fast broadband. People are 
going for faster speeds to connect the premises to the outside world. And then on the inside of the, of the network, there are more devices. People want to do more streaming of video. Video is one of the biggest traffic um, um, generators of our age, and it continues to grow. File sharing is up there as well. File sharing continues to grow. So when you get these things in aggregate, you find that sometimes the last thing that people think about is the firewall. So the firewall might have been there for several years. It has so much throughput. It, it is a front door. It's regulating what goes in and out. Uh, but it's the last thing people think of. So all of a sudden, the wireless experience is blamed on the wireless network, where it could actually be the firewall that's a challenge, just because of the increase in broadband that's allowed the wireless to get faster. Yes, and of course our habits have changed and that we're consuming so much more. So, you know, you mentioned um, before we started around the hotel you were, uh, you were staying at, and some of the challenge. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, no names mentioned as far as the hotel is concerned. We won't do that. But this is a fascinating piece. So we did some research about a year ago into the hotel sector, and we wanted to see what the hotel expectations were around wireless. And at the time we were putting this research together, we said, well, what's the point of getting the view of the hotel if we don't understand what the market's need is? So we went out and we did a survey on the number of hotels, and we also looked at those that the guests, what they thought of their Wi-Fi experience in the hotels. And what became apparent is there's a disconnect. And it got a lot of media attention because hotels were saying that their expectations for guests were that they really wanted the good user experience in terms of the comfortable bed, the comfortable mattress, the slippers, the, the dressing gown, the nice touches, the chocolates on the bed. Um, where actually what most customers were really looking for is a very good Wi-Fi experience to be part of that mix. And it, it revealed that if there's no good Wi-Fi experience, they probably won't come back. Uh, the hotel we stayed in, again, no names mentioned. Um, a brand name, I suppose, in some ways. But my experience was one of I kept having to re-sign into the network. Um, my signal kept dropping. There were times when I couldn't get any connectivity and we had to do a few conference calls. That left me and some colleagues rather frustrated. Um, is that now going to reflect on my, my want to go back? Yes, uh, now, hotels, independent hotels, brand hotels, they, they've got to think differently. Even the, the, the hospitality sector itself, so restaurants, independent coffee shops, its ability to recognize that Wi-Fi now has a, a role to play in helping you increase your revenue streams. Again, the experience being, if someone can't get a good Wi-Fi experience in your restaurant, then they'll go somewhere else. If it's a hotel, that sort of experience means that you don't get so many table covers. If it's the coffee shop... You've got to think about the high street and the locality in terms of the community. If you can prevent, sorry, present a wireless um, user experience that allows guests to come to your coffee shop and you display some adverts that show there's a sale next door exclusively through us, then you're going to bring more people in. So it's the concept of saying Wi-Fi now is it's about monetizing Wi-Fi, working out how you can re- get a good return on your investment, not only through faster speeds, but is it a way of delivering a different business model? And that's how things are moving. And how hard is it to, to do that? Because you, you talked about uh, firewalls. You need the right equipment to connect your uh, network that can take advantage of the this, you know, ultra-fast broadband-type speeds. And sometimes if you've got a, a device there that, that's doing a fair bit of uh, you know, work to, to check and to help minimise security risks, um, you might run into some issues with some of these newer speeds and then you've got to get your cabling right, you've got to have your Wi-Fi in the, in the right places. Is that, uh, is that achievable for most small businesses? So most small businesses, will they have a dedicated IT expert? The answer is invariably no. 
it could be the office manager it could be the proprietor someone is given that responsibility so they become a jack of all trades master of none so the need to have solutions that are easy to deploy you know, it's, it's a given but how many organizations out there or vendors actually deliver on that it, it comes down to the ease of use and ease of setup people are expecting to be able to tap into technology now and get things set up in minutes now, if you can set things up in minutes, then you find the experience becomes real for people in that they have more confidence in the technology. So a case in point, things like um, the education sector, education sector around the world, and this is regardless of country, um, those education verticals, schools, colleges, universities that are embracing the, the bring-your-own-device policy or wanting to support personalised learning so that students are learning on a one-by-one basis rather than en masse, um, the devices that are coming into those networks, the, sometimes the kids know more than the teachers, and that leaves teachers in a very uncomfortable position. And that's been the case for a, a long time with technology, hasn't it? Correct, correct. Yeah. Now, the way to play that one is, is, is leverage the skill set of the kids, leverage the skill set of the students, let them set up their own genius bar, so to speak. Let them take some ownership for some of the technology, and in so doing, they become part of the, the, the ownership and then it becomes a collaboration between the teachers, the, the parents, the caretakers, whatever, and the, and the students themselves, so that it, it starts to come together. If it's done in isolation, it won't work. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Now, tell us, what are, the, what are the trends that are coming through that will allow us to get the best benefits of the, these faster broadband connections within within a typical business environment? And, you know, you mentioned you sort of probably cover the the four or five up to uh, 500 user type locations, which will certainly cover a reasonable percentage of, of organisations within New Zealand, certainly not our, our larger educational institutions and uh, government departments and so on, but you know, will be relevant to, to many. Can you uh, talk us through what are the, what are the pieces there that uh, you're seeing that people are, are investing in to, uh, to get the, the best results out of these new faster uh, networks and the demand to be pushing around a lot a lot more data. I was involved recently with a, a project with a hotel that w- was probably previously in a similar state to the one that you described. Their usage for their um, visitors had just skyrocketed, mm. but they were on uh, equipment that was probably five years old. And you know what just wasn't designed to cope with the load. It was initially put in place where people were paying for usage, so they they weren't using it too much. And then they flipped to a model of look, every, everyone that's staying should have uh, should have free access. Uh, and of course, it went it went through the roof. So there was quite a bit of work there to uh, uh, to get that to a point where everyone could just get you know stunning speeds and get access wherever they they wanted it. Um, as you talked about the older uh, technologies like wireless N versus um, AC wireless and so on, you know, wasn't delivering at the level that uh, that people expected. What are the pieces to the puzzle to uh, to get these sort of things right? Not just, obviously just in that hotel environment, but in in general businesses. And should organisations now be expecting to throw away their wires and uh, have all of their staff working wirelessly? Well, that last that last point is a very interesting one. There was a view many years ago when Eleven N came out, the speeds that were that were presented. There was a view that said, well, there's going to be a, a time when you don't need the wired network. All you need is wireless. Uh, now, interestingly, over the last few weeks, we, we've done some of our roadshows and events, and we've asked, thrown the question into the audience, how many of you have a pure 100% wireless network? 
and you might get one to two percent. Um, and then you see some chuckles in the audience when, when you turn around and say, well, the future, is that going to be three, four years before that does become the case? And I think the answer is no. There will always be a need for a wired infrastructure. Even with the new 11AC standards of today, the, the future models that come out, and today you can't get any on the market, but, the, but they're coming. The ones that are coming will be multi-gigabit capable. So an access point that's multi-gigabit capable means that suddenly you have an access point that can go beyond the gigabit speed. Uh, multi-gigabit itself is the ability to read some of your cabling. So you have one gig, two and a half gig, and five gig. This wasn't there before. It's never been around. So it's new technology that suddenly means that if you're looking to develop or deploy a faster wireless experience, um, the wireless access points suddenly become faster than the wired network, and your wired network could become the weak link. That's where multi-gigabit switching comes in. So it's which is the first, chicken or the egg? The access point with multi-gigabit or the switch with multi-gigabit? Right. It's really about you can leverage multi-gigabit switching today in your network because it's backwards compatible. So if you've got 10, 100 um, devices or devices that need gigabit connectivity, you can support them. And if tomorrow you put in your wireless access point that can go faster than gigabit, then you're ready. And that's, that's a future-proofing message that, that's alive now, which means if you invest today that in three or four or five years' time, to your point, that technology is still relevant. There are customers out there that have switches that are 10 years old, and as far as they're concerned, they're good enough. Um, there are customers out there that have 11G, um, one of the earlier speeds, and they consider that good enough, but not necessarily across the entirety of the network. So there'll be pockets where you want things to be faster than others, and it's about being ready for that. Right. Now, we, we're used to our, uh, our speeds with wired networks sort of going up those, you know, tenfold increase. You know, back in, in the day, we had our 10 megabits, and there were obviously um, other things be- before that, uh, and then to 100, and then to 1,000 or, or gigabit, now 10 gigabit. Um, why, why is this sort of multi-gigabit, the 2.5 and the 5 gigabit available, and um, how simple is that? And, you know, are we talking standards? Um, you know, what are the what are the uniques and the and the reasons that we're seeing these sort of in, in between things? Is it all about supporting old cabling that maybe can't do the uh, the ten gigabit speeds, but you can get a little bit more than gigabit out of it? So the majority of organisations, um, a small medium business, if you've got a wide network, the chances are that you'll have something called Cat Five E cabling, and that's whether you've got even a home network. Um, if you've got a router in your, in, your, in your home network and you've connected it physically with the wire, you're likely using an RJ45 and a Cat5e cable. That is going to be the same technology you see in large enterprise and mid-enterprise, etc. Um, the majority of people have that technology. It's about reusing that rather than having to rip and replace all that that for some can become an expensive hobby. Um, just take advantage of a faster switch. So multi-gigabit is, is it's new in that it's not a standard yet. Uh, Netgear is part of uh, the Embase T Alliance, and there are a number of organisations in that in that group. And we are looking at how we extend the capability of that legacy Cat Five E cabling, so that you can go beyond gigabit, because that's been the limitation of that cabling to date. And that's what's allowed speeds of two and a half and five gig to come about. Otherwise, it'd be a case of having to rip and replace switches, rip and replace cabling, just to get up to ten gig. Right, yeah, and that that becomes a pretty expensive uh, exercise in a lot of cases. So, um, how how will that work in 
in practice? Are there different, uh, you know, lengths of cable that are supported and so on? What are the are there any you know big gotchas around these new speeds? And when would you expect there to be uh, these things to be standardised? You maybe got into operability with other manufacturer equipment and and so on. Is this a long way off? So distances, everything that you'd expect, 100 metres to reach typically. In terms of interoperability, there will be standardisation on interoperability. All the vendors, um, as we as we move to converge to get the standards in place, that's one of the top things on the agenda. It's making sure that there, there is compatibility there. So that shouldn't be an issue. In terms of when this becomes standard or when this becomes mainstream, it could be a few years off. But it depends on the application. It depends on the organisation and what, what the need is. So I, I envisage pockets of, of organisations where faster speeds become important to them. Um, so... Video, we take video. Video is the biggest generator of internet traffic today and it continues to grow. And that's the concept of streaming, whether it's in the home, whether it's in a small business, um, organizations that might be involved in film production or video editing or even CAD CAM, any form of large file size where the ability to send large files and content across the network become important, mm. whether it's over the wired network or whether it's over the wireless network. Uh, people want and expect that to be the case, that they can do it. Yep. Now, you also mentioned multi-gigabit uh, wireless. Explain that and how, what sort of wireless speeds that we ultimately should be uh, you know, expecting over the next year or two. Um, and what is the degradation as you put more and more people onto your wireless networks? What does that look like? Now, again, that's a, an interesting and a fascinating area. So with the, with the, the 11AC access points that you can buy today, they have greater capacity, not only in terms of throughput, but in terms of the number of clients that can sit off an access point. So you get a, a bigger concentration of activity, of traffic. Um, that's going to be a key piece that, that's, that's part of the story going forward. Uh, I think in terms of how organizations embrace that, it, it's, it's, it's really going to be down to maybe one or two access points in the network. And then that's it. And then maybe the rest of the network is still 11N. So maybe 5%, 10% of the network will be 11AC. Wave two. In terms of the access points coming down the road, you're looking at, say, another 6 to 12 months before you see this manifesting in more vendors coming to market with these sorts of products. Uh, And multi-gigabit itself is really, um, instead of having, say, a gigabit port on the back of the access point, you'll have that 2.5 gigabit port there. So from a connectivity point of view, you only need to use one wire, where today some organizations wanting to use the 11AC access points that are out there, they're having to use two wires to cope with that extra speed. Right, so you put two single gigabit connections into your into your wire. Correct, and that will go away access and that will be replaced by multi-gigabit. Right. And how reliable should people expect their Wi-Fi to be? I mean, is it, you know, you see there wasn't that much demand for people not to have wired connections, but... Any time I, I uh, talk to a business that's maybe moving premises, um, you know, they're, they're looking at an office fit out and they've, you know, got old cabling and so on, they're saying, Paul, do we need to spend all that money putting this cabling in? Can't we do everything wirelessly? How are you tending to answer that question today? Well... Um, if you speak to one of the, the, the product managers in our team, he, he paints that vision that says in the future, the access layer, the, the, the layer where all your different devices connect into the network, the first part being wireless, he sees that as being potentially 100% with the future Wave AC products coming. 
So I think you asked the question earlier on in terms of the speeds. I didn't really answer that specific piece, but the speeds that you can look to forward to could be anything up to six gigabits per second. Theoretical. It's always just up to. Because wireless being a shared medium, you've always got overhead, you've got distance that can uh, bring the speeds down. Depends on the number of clients trying to connect. So ultimately, you, you start putting the speeds down. But even then, when you've got the, capab- the capability of a, 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 an access point delivering 5 gigabit, 2.5 gigabits per second, then suddenly you've got a very powerful story there. And you will f- see more networks putting more wireless in place instead of the wired infrastructure. But ultimately, you still have to connect that access point to a switch. And this is where PoE comes in. So PoE, power over Ethernet, um, the ability for the switch to power that device, the access point or the the, the camera, um, door controllers. Yep. The the future of... Phones and handsets and so on. Correct. We're not there yet, but the, the ability for a switch to even power a laptop. All of a sudden, more, you're seeing more applications, more devices, more dependency on that switch network, all because of wired. So wired still has a role to play today as well as tomorrow. So even with the faster access points that are coming, they still have to connect physically to that wired switch. Now, you mentioned something there I hadn't heard before, the thought of powering a laptop off a network cable. Is that something that's being actively investigated and researched are there standards coming down that particular track I mean we've got uh, the USB-C connections now that are starting to become common in our, in our newest laptops where you've got this one cable and you can put your display over it and you can put uh, power over it and you can put um, your network connection over it is there some sort of tie-in happening there? Well you're going to see various manufacturers approach it differently but the common the common thread there will be um, how do you make the most of the given device in terms of its its future-proof capabilities? So some people have laptops that are three or four years old, and when they move to a new laptop, they suddenly experience a, a completely different experience, and they wish they'd done it sooner. So the technology refresh cycles are, are happening a lot quicker. Um, even inside the network, as well as personal devices, the, the refresh is happening quicker. Um, in terms of connectivity, 10 gig connectivity, the standardization around that uh, and POE, um, I would say that we're several years off before you see laptops being powered by POE. But if you're familiar with POE, power over Ethernet, then it typically delivers about 15 watts per port. And then the next step up will be POE Plus, which essentially doubles it from 15 to 30. And there's this concept of UPOE, universal power over Ethernet, which doubles it again. So it goes from 30 to 60 watts. So once you get to 60 watts, all of a sudden you open up the doors to a number of ways of powering different devices where that that potential becomes a possibility. So it could be, the say, the building lights that we're in that have been um, provisioned by the electrical circuit. It's being provisioned through the switching network, so to speak. That, that's, that is some time off, but as these technologies come to market, the early adopters go for them, um, and then you see some degree of maturity, in particular things like cost. Cost starts to come down, and that really starts driving adoption. 10 gig being a classic, it's been around since 2003 as a standard. Yes. But it hasn't really um, taken off outside of the large enterprise data center until maybe the last three or four years where it's gone from the data center into the heart of SMB networks now. And it's been because a number of barriers have been broken, technology barriers, so they're faster than ever before. There were concerns around latency. They've been addressed. There were concerns around pricing. 
they've come down probably 70%. So you've now got a technology that's accessible and more importantly affordable. And that drives the wider adoption. That's great. And uh, what else should we be should we, we be thinking about in terms of just closing that loop and getting the, the best results of our, out of our networks? Is there any, anything else in the picture? There, there's a final point that I think is, for me, it's becoming more... Um, obvious that this this conversation needs to be had inside organizations and that's the the concept of the business being mission critical networking being mission critical a few years ago if you asked small businesses is your network mission critical you'd probably get a mixed response today i think you'll find more people saying yes it is mission critical so the question i love to throw out to 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 our partners and customers because it gets them thinking it challenges their their thought process around having resilient networks. Now, what I mean by that, here's the question. This is the one to ask. Ask it of yourself. Um, you back up your data. Great. What's your backup plan for your switch network? Now, invariably, the responses I see is lots of hands go up around, yes, I back up my data. It's important to me. I need better recovery if I have an outage or a disaster recovery scenario that I have to um, support. But then when it comes to the switch network, not many people think about how to build a resilient, redundant switch network. So what I mean by that is if one switch goes down, you've still got the ability to connect to your network through a different route using another switch. And that gives rise to this concept of stacking and in, in, in switching. And stacking is something that isn't necessarily widely known in the SME market. It's more prevalent in the large enterprise space. But stacking in your switch network means that you're grouping switches together and you're treating them as one, but they have a degree of resiliency and redundancy there that if some part of the network goes down, it's not the entire network that's gone down. Right. And that's something that's becoming more important because businesses see their networks as being mission critical. If it's mission critical to you, you're backing up your data, then don't make the switch network your weak link. You've got to build resilience into the switch network as well. Yeah, that's great. Now, cyber security is, is something that we're um, having to constantly think about. Are, are there any um, major new innovations that are happening in the area of, uh, of wireless and, and network switching that, that um, you know, relates specifically to, uh, to cyber security that we should be aware of? Cyber security is always going to be part of the overall network design. Um, in terms of innovation, you're going to see different players talking about the, the, the role for encrypting data, um, not only in terms of how you store it inside the cloud, um, but before you send it to the cloud. So I think there are, there's, there's a prevalence to take content and just send it to the cloud and hope the provider is, is doing some sort of authentication and encryption. I think that security um, need has to happen inside the network before you send data anywhere. Yes. Um, that's not necessarily on people's radars today. So I would encourage organizations, small and large, that if, when it comes to looking at the security piece, where you have the ability to encrypt data before you're moving it out, sensitive data moving outside of your organization, make sure you do it. Don't rely on someone else to do it. Mm. And the cybersecurity piece, um, I think the, the lack of appreciation of that point I made there is manifesting itself in that there's a reticence for people to move to the cloud. The cloud is here. It's been around for 20 plus years. What's making it change and, and, and suddenly become more topical? Broadband speeds again. Faster connections outside the world, into the outside world. Um, got more data. Um, progressive small businesses today they are, they want a technology platform that they can get going quickly they can return investment quickly they don't want to be hampered by old technology and if you think about the new generation of kids coming through today in terms of how they can code 
They want to do things differently and they have a different mindset when it comes to security as well. So security in terms of products, that's always going to be a, an evolving landscape. But I think the mindset needs to change more to how do I encrypt data before I send it somewhere? Okay. And and your take on where we're at now in terms of how safe is Wi-Fi for, you know, for moving you know, really secure data around for those people that have traditionally moved data over the wire, um, but you know, find it more convenient to do that uh, wirelessly. How safe are our current protocols from your perspective? I think they're I think they're more than adequate to do the job. I mean, my, wireless is just a different medium in terms of how you transport content. Um, however, having said that, you're always going to have people that are trying to sniff that traffic over the air. Yes. Um, hence my point about work out how you transmit content in a secure manner right um it, it's it's horses with courses for some people it's 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 recognizing this technology is here it's going to stay it's going to grow it's going to be part of our everyday life so you either embrace it or you run away from it if you run away from it what's the alternative to it? yeah well that's great well thank you very much for your time tris uh excellent to uh, to get that update and i hope the rest of your travels go well um you're heading back to the uk shortly Yep, back tomorrow, back to the sunnier um, climbs. I don't know if it'll be any sunnier than here, but no, it's been a very enjoyable trip, very rewarding. That's excellent. And so your your role, your um, global product manager, so you'll be continuing on and, and doing plenty more travel. We might see you down in New Zealand again sometime. I'm sure, I'm sure we will. But yeah, it, it's it, it's really about getting out there and um, having that new conversation with people. And that's the exciting thing about this technology. Um, conversations that we've, be, we've not been able to have in the past because the technology has not been there. It's there now, so we can do that, and that's what's exciting about it. Excellent. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.